Welcome to the In All Things podcast, where we host conversations with diverse voices about living creatively in God's created world. My name is Justin Ariel Bailey, and I teach at Dort University, which is home to the Andreas Center, the sponsor of this podcast. In this episode of the podcast, we are talking with A.J. Swoboda, pastor, professor, and writer about his new book, After Doubt. And our theme question for the episode is this, what does it mean to question our faith without losing it? Now, as we've done with previous episodes, we are giving away five copies of his book. You can enter the drawing by following In All Things on social media, sharing or retweeting this episode. Leaving a review of the podcast will get you three bonus entries. And as always, you can follow the links in the episode description or on social media. Thanks again for tuning in. I regularly have students in my office talking about faith and doubt. The former, faith, is easier to talk about than the latter, doubt, because having doubts can be experienced as an act of betrayal, especially if you've grown up in a family that nurtured you in faith. One of the most important things we can do for those who doubt is to follow what scripture says in Jude 22, have mercy on those who doubt. Indeed, doubt is not always the same as disbelief. Some doubt is a good thing, because it leads us to dig deeper, to examine our faith more closely, and to let go of the superstitions and sentimentalities that we sometimes mistake for faith. Sometimes doubt is not so much a challenge against God as it is a challenge against our beliefs about God. And there's a difference. Doubt can become an invitation to build your faith on something better, an invitation to own the faith more fully for yourself, believing as one who has felt the gravity of doubt. At the same time, doubt sometimes comes from a place of cynicism, a place that refuses the possibility of an answer or of a resolution. We sometimes speak of blind faith compared to honest doubt, but faith can also be clear-eyed and honest, while doubt can be blind and dishonest. Honest questioning tends to purify faith, but cynical questioning kills it. Honest questioning is really looking for an answer. Cynical questioning is just trying to find a way to avoid the claims of faith. And for someone looking for an excuse, almost any excuse will do. Navigating doubt is therefore a matter of discernment. We must be quick to hear slow to speak, and slow to shut down the conversation with premature pronouncements. Rather, we must learn to walk together with patience and love and hope, trusting that there is something deeper than doubt. To help us with this process, we welcome A.J. Swoboda to the In All Things podcast. Dr. A.J. Swoboda is Assistant Professor of Bible, Theology, and World Christianity at Bushnell University. He also leads a Doctor of Ministry program around the Holy Spirit and leadership at Fuller Theological Seminary, and he co-hosts a podcast named In Faith and Doubt with Nijay Gupta. He is the author of a number of books, including the award-winning Subversive Sabbath and his recent book, After Doubt. A.J., thanks so much for joining us. Justin, I am so glad to be with you. So you have written a book on doubt, and the subtitle is How to Question Your Faith Without Losing It. And to some of us, these two things sort of go together, right? How could we question our faith without being in danger of losing it? And the idea of even questioning our faith 
sounds wrong, but what prompted this book and how are you trying to help us rethink the dynamics of faith mm. and doubt? Well, the, there's, I think, a, a pastoral element to this book. There's, there's certainly an academic itch that I'm seeking to, to sort of scratch. And that is, you know, a, a theological question, which is, what is the relationship between doubt and what you and I would call deconstruction, which are adjacent terms? They're not the same thing. But how does that relate to the Christian life? Uh, so there's, there's an academic kind of theological itch that I'm trying to scratch. But more on, on a more human level, um, I've spent 22 years serving the spiritual journeys of young people uh, as a college pastor for 10 years, as a church planner in Portland, Oregon for 10 years, and as an academic for the last decade, and watching young people deconstruct their faith and paying attention to those stories and what happens. And it turns out there's some very odd similarities between these stories. They're not, they're not really all that unique. Actually, there's quite a similarity between all of them. And so I'm attempting in this book to pave a path to Jesus in the midst of doubt. And I, I think that this is an attempt at helping cr people, Christians, um, follow what I call the Thomas path, uh, the path through doubt back to faith. So it sounds to me like you're trying to almost normalize doubt and bring it into a safe space of the mm. church, but you also don't want to leave us in the desert of deconstruction. Your book is called After Doubt. And so I'm wondering, what, what might we hope with respect to the continuing role of doubt in the life of faith? Is it just something that will always be there? Um, it, can we move past doubt? Is, is there post-doubt faith? Uh, can we get rid of it? Should we hope to get rid of it? What do you think as you think about the continuing role of doubt that some of us still have? It's funny if I if I could actually Justin push back on your question a little bit, not because your question was wrong, but so there's these kind of two worlds that I see forming right now in the church. Um, this kind of conservative world that's that essentially demonizes doubt and says, "Don't do it. It's bad. It's evil. It's wrong. Stay away from it." Uh, and then there's this other side, the kind of progressive vision that actually valorizes doubt and almost seems to suggest that it's the only way to God. Uh, in order for us to have an authentic, real faith, we have to have deconstructed historic Christianity. Um, and I'm really actually trying my best here to pave a third way, that we that we should not valorize doubt, nor should we demonize doubt. Uh, I think doubt is a little bit like sneezing. Um, nobody like wants to do it. <laughs> mm. <laughs> From time to time you do. And we all know how awkward people look when they try to hold it in. Um, that, that from time to time, we all walk through it. It's not a question of getting people to do it or keep people from doing it. It's a question of what do we do when we do go through it? Yeah. Um, and if we do, and most the truth is most of us at some point will walk through this. experience. So I outlined three stages, which even as an academic, I, 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 I have some critiques for my own, my, my own approach here, but I kind of iron out three stages of what we call construction, deconstruction, and reconstruction. Construction are those years that we sort of establish our faith, our first years of faith. Deconstruction are those years that we question those initial beliefs. And then there's a third stage called reconstruction. And a lot of Christians assume that the doubt and deconstruction stage is the end. And that, and that, and that, that sort of is your out of Christianity. When in reality, in Christian history, the number of our heroes in the faith, all the way from Luther to Calvin to John Wesley to Augustine, who walked through stages of major doubt and came out the other side deeper in love with Jesus is astounding. 
we could write a book on this. The number of, of, of people in church history have struggled with this stuff. And the, really what I'm trying to say here is doubt and deconstruction uh, are not the destination. They're a middle ground. Mm. Uh, and, and that the hope is actually returning to our faith in a deeper way, the way Thomas did in the New Testament. So you've used the word deconstruction a few times, and you said this is different than doubt. Um, yeah. But just help us understand what what you mean by that word has obviously a philosophical lineage. Um, mm-hmm. But how are you using that word? And and also, what sort of people are in danger of deconstruction? Yeah, wow, that's two really important questions. I do think it's important to say, and I mentioned this in the book, I do think that doubt and deconstruction are adjacent terms, but are not the same thing. Doubt, as I see it, tends to be when we struggle to accept things we've already accepted. So it, it's almost like this internal cognitive dissonance with something we hold, we, we, we already believe. Um, so, you know, you, you'll find Thomas, again, John 20, Thomas um, believes in Jesus. I mean, he spent three years with Jesus, but then doubts the resurrection. So he he's, it's not an issue. He believes, he actually does believe, but he's struggling to believe. Mm-hmm. Um, Deconstruction, on the other hand, which is, again, you you said is a philosophical category that largely derives itself from kind of the French postmodernist tradition, um, is more of an intentional undoing or dismantling of certain beliefs. I, I, I guess you could say, you could almost put it this way. Doubt tends to happen to us, but deconstruction is something we tend to do to our beliefs. Hmm. So one is a bit more proactive, I think. Um, your second question, sort of, uh, who is susceptible to deconstruction. Um, And I I think there's two answers to that. I think on one level, all of us, um, because any of us that received the faith in Jesus, the Christian faith, received that faith from a broken community. Okay. When I first met Jesus, I went to this conservative evangelical home church in my hometown, and I'm so grateful for that church. They taught me how to love God. They taught me how to repent. They taught me about the Bible. They taught me Jesus is the only way to God. They taught me about the Trinity. I'm so grateful for that. But there were also some things that they taught me that were not good, that did not reflect Jesus. Hmm. And part of growing in my faith was receiving the good stuff and learning how to let go of the stuff that did not reflect Jesus. I would hope we all go through that process Hmm. of discerning and sanctifying our minds. On the other hand, I think if you live in the Western world, we live in what I call a deconstruction age where everything right now is about undoing the past. We, are, we have so overemphasized moving into the future that we now forget the past or we want to undo it. C.S. Lewis had a word for this. He called it chronological snobbery. Um, we, you and I might call it presentism. We over-focus on the present and the future and are now really unhitching from the past. And so in essence, I think we're all we're all in danger of doing that. And that's a very posture, a dangerous posture to have, especially for the Christian. Yeah. It's part of the concern, you know, maybe you can imagine taking a car engine apart or something like that in your garage, you intentionally dismantle it, you know, perhaps to fix it. But it's part of the concern is that we would just have a bunch of dismantled engines and never be able to drive, <laughs> drive yeah. anywhere. Right. Yeah. That, well, that, and that is, isn't that the difference between, uh, between a doctor and a coroner? You know, the difference is that one knows how to put back together again and bring life. Yeah. Or the other one only knows how to tear something apart. But we are bordering on a point in Christian history in the West where we have deconstructed Christianity so far that it's starting to not represent the apostolic Christianity mm. uh, of the early church. And and I, I, I'm not sounding the alarm here, 
But, but I am attempting to say there comes a point when we deconstruct Christianity to the point that it is no longer historic Christianity. And that, that is a problem and we need to address it. Um, you know, this, this is not, by the way, and, and for any of your listeners, this is not a subtle attempt to get progressives to become conservatives again, nor is it an attempt to get conservatives to become progressives. This is actually a call for both conservatives and progressives. This is going to sound crazy to come back to Jesus <laughs> and that we all need to come back to Jesus from exactly where we are. Yeah. Always the right direction to move. Um, yeah. The Jesus move as we call closer it. to Jesus. Jesus move. Yes. Yeah. 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 I appreciated that about the book. You talk about the dark side of deconstruction. Um, and I, it strikes me that, you know, sometimes we speak of blind faith compared to honest doubt, but you know, faith can also be honest and doubt can be blind. And so I wonder if you can help us, how would you help us discern, or maybe for students who are in a process of dismantling or deconstruction yeah. that actually happens, how do you discern between honest doubts and doubts that are maybe smoke screens for something That's else? That's a great question. Man, you're good, Justin, at asking questions. <laughs> well, you you notice in the life of Jesus, by the way, uh, there, there was a beautiful little book written a number of years ago by a New Testament scholar by the name of Conrad Gump, and it was a systematic look at all the questions that were asked in the New Testament. And, and he, he actually says, you know, when, when Jesus is asked questions, he always responds really in two different ways. To one group of people who ask Jesus questions, he answers. And to one group, he never answers. He always asks questions back. And he said, the difference between the two is he always gives answers and responses to people who ask honest questions. Mm-hmm. But when the Pharisees and Sadducees come, they don't come to ask honestly. They come to trap Jesus. That's a line, actually, the Gospels use quite regularly. They came to trap Jesus. And when Jesus was trapped, when they were trying to trap Jesus, he always responds to questions with what with questions. <laughs> and this, what he's doing is he's, it, you and I would say he's dodging the question. And the reason he's dodging the question is because you can't give a good answer to a bad question. Mm. The difference between the two is the posture of the heart of the person asking the question. And you and I, who are educators, we know, you can sense when a student is honestly seeking truth or if a student is trying to trap you in, a, in your words. And I think Jesus was a master at responding not at people, not to people's words, but to the posture of their heart. Yeah, There is a difference between asking a question and wanting to trap someone. Now, you made a comment, I, I, I talk about in the book, the dark side of deconstruction. Right. For a lot of us who, are, who, who received our faith in kind of conservative fundamentalist circles, uh, which is the environment that I received my faith from, there, there is on that side an arrogance, you know, an arrogance that we know the truth and we, we, we have uh, come to arrive in, in sort of this closed posture towards the world. But I've experienced that when people deconstruct that and move towards progressive fundamentalism, the pride is all the more uh, insane on that side. Mm-hmm. And, and the pride of that somehow we move from believing the truths to be inerrant to now our questions are inerrant and our, and our experience becomes inerrant, where our questions are now the truest questions. And if you can't answer them, da, 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 da. So what I think we need <laughs> is I think we need what A.W. Tozer so eloquently called gentle dogmatism. And that is a deeply convicted holding to biblical and historic Christian orthodoxy 
but with a really generous heart. Mm. Uh, years ago, Brian McLaren wrote a book called Generous Orthodoxy. And what he, I think he got the book wrong. And here's why I got it wrong. What he really meant was we need our orthodoxy to be a bit more open. And, and I wish what he meant was that we should be doggedly orthodox, but really gentle about it. Mm. And he actually meant it in the other way that our orthodoxy can shift and change a little bit. When in reality, I think our orthodoxy can't change, but we need to be really gentle about it. Hmm. Yeah, I appreciate that. It reminds me of, there's this great line from Chesterton where he's talking about, and forget what 19th century figure he's talking about, but he said he got away from fundamentalist doctrine, but never from the fundamentalist mood. And uh, uh, and, and there's, <laughs> there's this sense, yeah, that is, is certainly the case, the sort of closed handedness that you find on um, all around. If I could take it in a little bit of a different direction towards working with emerging adults, you dedicate the book to your students yes, and it's clearly born out of real questions that students have and real struggles that you've helped them walk through. And I really appreciated your discussion of differentiation and deconstruction or how Doubt is nested within this natural process of growing up. And I think particularly, you've already mentioned that the polarization that we exist in, and especially emerging adults finding themselves polarized at odds with family members, you know, Thanksgiving is a tough time or whatever. Um, And there is this sense of fraying connections, a feeling of spiritual homelessness, maybe even betrayal that this, this faith that nurtured my faith is has become something different than I thought it was. Can you say more about that challenge? You you say in your book, walking the tightrope between becoming our own person and honoring our past. There there has been a a significant amount of literature written on major cultural and societal shifts in the Western environment post-World War II. The the post-war West really went through some massive shifts in particular in how people relate to their religious traditions. Peter Berger wrote a book called The Homeless Mind a number of years ago, and he talks about the idea of honor cultures. In the ancient world, uh, you have an essentially a cultural environment that is marked by the protection and preservation of the past. And so everything in, in the for example, in the time of Jesus, everything was about protecting and preserving the traditions of the past and, mm. and sort of retweeting the past. Everything was about the past. And that set up an environment that made it really hard, for example, to be a prophet because a prophet is call, always calling people into God's future, you know, what God is calling us into. So th- this is why, you know, Jesus as a prophet has no honor in their hometown because the prophet challenged the perceived tradition. They challenged the past. They challenged what people thought. Well, we, so that's an honor culture. We've become what I call an, a leaving culture, which is now our heroes are the people who have freed themselves from the past. In this leaving culture, everything is about how, what you have left behind. Everything's about moving forward. So in the, in the New Testament, a prophet had no honor in their hometown. In our world, the prophet has no honor for their hometown. And so we're a generation of people who are protesting and fighting for justice and goodness, but it is all in the construct of having left behind our old religious past. That shift really impacts the way we receive the faith. In our world's eyes, it makes us complicit in in oppression. It makes us complicit in a whole variety of, of things. 
And that creates a lot of tension for young people right now. Because, for example, on sexuality, um, I'm wildly conservative when it comes to the topic of sexuality. And when I name that in my classes, you know, that that puts me in the category of just being a part of the old people in the past that did harm and evil. Those emotional tensions create an environment where a lot of young people are, are sort of unhinging from the past because they see those old beliefs as being harmful. When in reality, what we're actually saying is we're saying uh, that we think we are more generous than, G- than Jesus was. Uh, we're more kind than God is. And there's a pride in that. You know, there's a pride in thinking we have arrived. We are simultaneously in the Bible called to do two things. We are called to honor our mother and our father, and we are called to leave our mother and our father. Honoring means that we receive what's been given to us, and we also become the person God has called us to be. And I would say our leaving culture overemphasizes only leaving, and the past emphasized only honoring but we are called to do both. And that when you go into a counselor's office, any counselor would say this, receive the good things your family of origin gave you, receive them, but also name the family sins that need to be named. Mm. Yeah. Let me flip it with uh, respect to children, to parents, because you, you brought up this idea of receiving and honoring what our parents have given us or what our community has given us. Mm-hmm. There were some moving passages in your book about your hopes and your fears for your son. Oh. Um, you say, am I merely candying my boy something he'll ultimately reject? And I, f- I have two children myself and I found that really moving and I identified with it. And, you know, even as we are both very much still on this path of passing on faith to our children, uh, what has helped you as you yeah. approach that? I mean, there are many, maybe parents who are listening to this podcast and they're not the ones going through the faith deconstruction. Their children are, yes. and yes. they're fearful of their kids walking away from faith. What would you say to parents who are fearful of that, yeah. of their children abandoning their childhood faith? Yeah, and Justin, I, it doesn't come across in the book, but I will tell you that as I wrote those sections, I wrote with tears dripping on my on my computer screen. Mm. I mean, the, the, that section for me is the crew de ta of this book because I'm 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 literally outlining. How do I hand my son a faith yeah. so that, that, that he will actually receive? And because and, I know as a dad, I know that at some point, my son is going to go to university. He's going to have his first philosophy professor, and he's going to have to figure out, you know, if I'm going to receive this or not. And that's a terrifying venture. I say two things um, uh, in terms of being a dad that really have stood out to me. Number one is whenever my nine-year-old son, and I have one boy, Whenever my son has a question about God, no matter how hard it is and no matter how much he's struggling with God or the Bible, and he's already had his little epistemic crisis at nine, for heaven's sake. Every time he asks a question, I want to, the most important thing my son gets is not an answer. It is an affirmation that his questions matter. And so before I give my son any response, I will look him in the eyes and say, Elliot, that is a beautiful question. I want my son to know that his questions are permitted in the presence of God. Because here's what's going to happen. If his questions are not permitted before the Lord, he's going to find them on some podcast that wants to deconstruct his faith. He's going to find some philosophy professor where those questions are welcomed. So I want my son to know his questions are welcomed. Mm -hmm. And the second thing 
is I want my son to know that I respect his boundaries. And, and, the, and the story that really spoke to me about this was a young woman who was raised in a, in a conservative Christian home. And she tells this story of she was never in her family allowed to have boundaries. Her faith was her parents' faith. And she said the way she knew there were no boundaries is her mom would never knock on the door when she came in. Her mom would never knock. She would just barge into her room. She would never knock. There were no boundaries. And she, she of course, leaves home, goes to college, first year of college, deconstructs her faith. She's done with Christianity. <laughs> and then after college, gets married, has a kid, and all of a sudden needs God because having kids makes you need God. And so she starts going back to church. And she uh, is either reading scripture or somebody preaches on it, but she comes across the line in Revelation where Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. And all of a sudden, she gets it. In her childhood, faith was forced upon her. But in her, in her adulthood, Jesus is inviting and knocking, and he will not force his way in. I think for a lot of us, we were never given boundaries as kids. And so we have to deconstruct because we need to become our own person. I want my son to be handed the faith in a non-coercive invitational way because Jesus does stand at the door of my son's life. He does stand and he knocks. And I don't think Jesus barges in. And I want to I model that as a dad. Yeah, thanks for that. If I could shift that just a little bit to say, maybe not as a parent, but as a pastor or as a professor or a faith mentor, mm. you know, we of, oftentimes the doubters are in our offices and yet there are other times that it feels like the majority of people, our students, our parishioners are mm. unaware that there are problems or they're just interested in being told the right answer is they... Yeah. They are not interested in the conflict and the stress, you know, surely somebody's figured this out. I will just believe what everybody else believes. And yet maybe privately they wrestle with questions that they're afraid to name. And so there's this tension that I feel as a professor, a lot of times I don't want to become a, what now and calls an easy defender of God. Um, mm-hmm. I want to create a space where difficult questions can be raised, but I also don't want to become the one who is doing the deconstructing of people yes. who might not necessarily be in that stage. So yeah. how can you help those who are faith leaders live in that tension of wanting to welcome the questions, make spaces that are safe for that, but at the same time, not always being the one who's yes. getting people to question what they've always been yes. taught or what they always believe. It is not my assignment as a leader to get my students to get to where I am at in, in my in my theological journey, and that means um, if if I am intentionally trying to get my students to construct, I have forgotten that these are sheep; they are not camels, and it's not my job to burden them with my junk. Mm-hmm. Camels carry things around for people; that's not their job. My job is to serve them where they are, right where they're at, and not get them to deep. That is not my job. I I think that one of the important practices that I have learned as a faith leader and as an academic is that when my students come into my office with questions, before they are done, I need to go into that conversation, not assuming that I need to give them my advice or my counsel. And what I mean by that is this, I need to practice what I call spiritual consent. 
And what I mean by spiritual consent is quite simply that when somebody sits in my office and pours their soul out about something they're struggling with, before I give any advice, counsel, whatever, I need to pause and I need to look at them and say, thank you. How are you inviting me to respond? Because friends, sometimes they don't need a response. They just need to be heard. Mm. Sometimes they are asking me to help them through it. But it is presumptuous to force feed something that maybe they're not ready to receive. When I pause and simply say, thank you, how are you inviting me to respond? I am giving them permission to give me access or not. Too many, too many Christians experience deep spiritual wounds because they shared their deep struggles and then were force-fed how they need to respond. And they were never invited in. It's just somebody barging into the room. For us to assume we have consent without being invited in does very big trauma to, mm. this, to the human soul. Mm. That simple question, when I'm, and I, and I mean it, that simple question, I'm in my office right now. That simple question changes the entire conversation mm. because they recognize I, I honor them so much so as to only go where they're inviting me to go. Yeah. And it turns out when you are welcomed and you enter, they will continue to invite you into more yeah. and more and more. Yeah. That's such a helpful practice. Let me uh, shift into one more sphere, which is church. The COVID-19 season obviously has caused churches to drastically rethink ministry. Um, has it really? It in feels a time insane. of pandemic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> to you. Yeah. Um, and there are lots of people that have stopped going to church or at least it seems like they have. And yeah, the struggle with church and the struggle with faith are two different struggles, but they are related. Yeah. And I appreciated the way that your book closely connected them, but it was also written from this deep place of love for the local congregation. 100%. And what would you say, what's the role of the church when it comes to doubt, especially for those who've been wounded or disillusioned yep. by the church? I want to read a quote that I really liked. It's on page 89. And you say, sometimes the best I can do when I struggle with my faith is to surround myself with the faithful the way the blind would for those who see. We all need a group around us who believe for us when we struggle to believe on our own. And I wonder if you could just say more about the role of the church mm-hmm. and what does it mean for us to see faith almost as a community project and not as this individual achievement. Uh, oh, uh, Justin, somebody to. should give you an award for the best podcast question <laughs> asking ever. You're great at these questions. Well, I'll take, I'll take the award. <laughs> the, award the, the award for the Justin, the Justin Bailey podcast question award. Well, so let's, let's dig in for a moment into the gospel uh, picture of Thomas, John 20, the story of Thomas, Thomas, um, who followed Jesus for three years, saw the miracles, uh, saw it all, saw the dead, the raised. I mean, you, you name it. And Jesus dies and then resurrects and shows himself to 10 disciples, but not to Thomas. And so the disciple, the, the 10 have seen him, but Thomas has not. And he says to the 10, I will only believe so long as I get the chance to touch the hand of Jesus, the scars. And they tell him about the resurrection. And in John 20, the, the, the Johannine sort of telling of this story, it's just breathtaking the way John narrates this story. And he includes a, 
a detail that we should not overlook. And that is that Jesus actually doesn't show Thomas the scars for a whole week. Um, <laughs> and what's striking to me is that Jesus doesn't freak out about Thomas's doubt crisis. He's not like, oh my gosh, there's a person doubting my ontological nature is in question. You know, he, Jesus is not freaking out about th that there's somebody struggling with doubt. He waits for a week and then shows up and shows him his body. What is striking to me is, A, Thomas remained in the group of faithful witnesses for a week. He waits for a week among the disciples, but all the more that the faithful disciples who believed in the resurrection made space for a guy that was doubting for a whole week. You know, when you read Jude verse 22, that classic text that says, be merciful to those who doubt. Well, that implies the doubters are among us. I think I, I bear a responsibility as somebody right now who's not walking through doubt or deconstruction. I'm actually reconstructing. I'm, 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 I'm fairly just in love with Jesus all over again right now, <laughs> to be honest with you. It is my responsibility to bear space in my life for people that are really struggling with their faith and that they are allowed to be around me and that I, I, am, I am at peace and I'm not freaking out the way Jesus didn't freak out. I'm at peace. Hmm. Now, the beautiful story, Thomas, is because there was a faithful community that was willing to make space for a doubter. What does Thomas go to do? He becomes the first missionary to go to India. In fact, if you've ever met an Indian Christian with the last name Thomas, there are 2,000 years of Thomas Christian communities that exist today because a doubter was believed in and made space for to become a missionary. And I think that when we make space for doubters, we are just preparing missionaries for their future adventures. Um, we need to stop seeing doubters as a problem. We need to see them as our future missionaries, um, the way Thomas was. So there is power. There is power in a community that can hold onto and embrace a person who is going through a season of faith struggle. You know, when you fall asleep at night, we all have this happen. You fall asleep on your arm and your arm goes to sleep. Well, nobody, when their arm falls asleep, just cuts it off because it's not working at the moment. What do you do? You shake it, you hold on to it, and then it comes back. Friends, when we have people in our churches or wrestling with their faith, the greatest thing we can do is just hold on to them. Amen. Let me read one more quote and then ask you one more question. And this is connected to what you've just been saying. There's this great quote on page 120, where you're writing from the perspective of the church in the voice of the church. And you say, order your pizzas and books online, but don't take your deepest <laughs> doubts and questions there. Bring them to us, God's people on the ground. Please don't replace us. Question the assumption that a PhD is the same as being wise or the assumption that most viewed or viral has anything to do with veracity. Don't necessarily need you to comment on that. But my final question is, if there's just one thing you could say to somebody who is going through a season of doubt and deconstruction, what would that primary thing be? And if there is one practice you could commend to someone who is going through a season yeah. of doubt, what practice would that be? Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm going to stick up for a second for, 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 for pastors and Christians and local churches here, because when you're pastoring people going through deconstruction and they are going to podcasts over you. When I was a pastor, 
My job is to be there for people in their worst moments and their best moments. You would die. You lay your, you're laying your life down to be with these people. And it really hurts. <laughs> it really hurts to have people in your community that are replacing you with podcasts. It really hurts when you're replaced as a dialogue partner for people that are going through struggles. And I want to just stick up for a second for the importance of the local church. And that is, for God's sake, don't replace the flesh and blood of people on the ground who are seeking to follow Jesus with some disembodied talk by somebody who doesn't know you and won't be there for you on your deathbed and in your births. Stop replacing. It is so Gnostic to replace the flesh and blood on the ground with a talk on the internet. Come back to God's people. Let's wrestle together. Don't replace us. That's what I would say. Mm. And I know that's hard to say in COVID because some of us can't literally can't be together. Um, I'm thinking long-term here. I'm just saying, please, please, let's take communion together. Mm. Let's cry together. Let's struggle together. Well, AJ, thanks so much for taking time to talk to us today. The book is After Doubt. Uh, it is such a gift to the church and um, pray that God would use it in many ways to help those who are walking through a season of doubt, as well as those who are trying to help others who are walking in seasons of doubt. So AJ, thanks so much again for joining us on the In All Things podcast. Yeah, Justin, it's been a joy. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with AJ. If it was helpful, I hope you will get your hands on his new book. And we want to make that easy on you by giving away five copies of the book. In order to enter the drawing, you can share the episode on social media, or you can get additional entries by leaving a review. And all the links, as always, are found in the episode description. The contest will run for two weeks until the next episode is released. On the next In All Things podcast, we're talking to Dr. James Eglinton, the biographer of the acclaimed biography of Dutch theologian Herman Bavink. For that reason, he just didn't think that Calvinism would take off in America. Um, and then he goes back to the Netherlands and gives all these lectures where he ends each one by saying, but don't despair, Dutch friends, because Calvinism isn't the only truth. I think what he means by that is that although he was really convinced that Calvinism was the most, it was the best biblical uh, appropriation of the biblical faith handed down to the saints throughout the ages. But he also thought that Christianity was something that was too rich to be contained by any one um, articulation of it. There's still more, you know, there's always this inexhaustible treasure of meaning and power within Christianity that will take root in different ways in different parts of the world. So he thought, you know, we can't just export Dutch Calvinism and think that it's going to work in America. You actually have to let Christianity grow organically in America, and then you get an American Christianity. The church will grow and thrive across the world um, by the grace of God, not because of Dutch industriousness in exporting the best thing that they have. So, you know, if the gates of hell can't win against the church, American lack of receptivity to Calvinism also isn't going to thwart God's plans. Um, it's not the only truth. So I think, and there, you know, there, that's something that 
reform people today can can chew over still and and really think about. Thanks for listening to the In All Things podcast from the Andreas Center at Dort University. Original music is provided by The Ruralist, and thanks are in order to Shannon Bisher, Emily Rowe, Vaughn Donahue, and the production team at the Andreas Center. You can find us online at inallthings.org or follow us on Twitter under the name at in underscore all underscore things. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever podcasts are found. And if you find our content beneficial, please help us out by leaving a review and sharing with others. Thanks for tuning in.